When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi there. My name is Zach Twomley. You're listening to When the Policy Fails and the Versailles Anniversary Project. But more specifically, you're listening to the first of a two-parter looking of Woodrow Wilson, the man, the myth, the legend, the infamy, everything else all wrapped up together. Woodrow Wilson was a complex guy and he had a lot going on in his mind and he caused a lot of things to happen as well. So it only makes sense to spend such a long time on him. As you can tell, this is a very large episode. So as is my want with the larger episodes, there will be a break halfway through where we'll unleash one of these songs that I've been holding on for. Other than that, you should know that this podcast episode is brought to you by The Delegation Game. And The Delegation Game is probably the best way you guys can engage with, well, what we're doing here at the Versailles Anniversary Project. On the 18th of January, we'll all be flying over to Paris, the virtual version of the Paris Peace Conference, and we'll be starting to make things happen in this virtual world. We already have 18 delegates signed up so if you want to join by all means do head over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails for six dollars a month the same price as that really really overpriced coffee in starbucks which i really couldn't believe it is that expensive but it genuinely is i spent six dollars on a coffee and i really couldn't believe it but in any case yes six dollars a month will get you access to the delegation game Every week then, for the next six months, we'll be throwing challenges at you guys, and you'll get to vote on what happens next. Build your avatar, send them my way, and I will do some dice rolls, I'll set up some challenges, we'll have some polls, and we'll see what happens next. So far we've got some very interesting characters to send to Paris, so I hope you have a think about whether or not the delegation game is for you. If you just want some information, make sure you head over to wdfpodcast.com forward slash delegation game. Alrighty guys, I hope you enjoy this one. 
It's, well, it's pretty weighty. There's an awful lot going on. But if you like your American history, if you like your presidents, if you like your Woodrow Wilsons, then you've come to the right place. Thanks and enjoy. You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 11. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons, delegates, all to episode 11 of the Versailles Anniversary Project. So, I suppose we should start with the ickiest part of this episode. I'm just going to get this out of the way straight away. So, I need to say this, because if I don't, people will tell me so. Woodrow Wilson was not a very nice guy, and by that I mean, I don't mean that his political views weren't very nice, I mean he was a thoroughly racist human being. He was a very racist man, he did not believe that people with different coloured skin were entitled to the same rights as him. He didn't believe biologically they were the same, and it's a bit uncomfortable sifting through his private memoirs and everything else like that, because you kind of get the feeling that, well, those views were fairly rampant at the time, and he very much bought into them. Then again, that does not mean that he didn't do some good, and it didn't mean that some of his ideas were not good. I know that some people tend to tar a person with a very negative brush because they have views that these days are not at all good, and I'm not at all saying for one second that his racism was acceptable, but I am saying that just because he was a racist human being, that does not mean that we should ignore what he did, what he tried to do, or the legacy he left behind, because all of those things are considerable, and unless... Like, ignoring everything else, unless we understand Woodrow Wilson, the human being, we won't really be able to get to grips with what he did at the Paris Peace Conference and how the Treaty of Versailles emerged 
and was shaped and moulded in the way that it was. Please don't see this as me trying to excuse racism. Maybe you're thinking right now, Zach, it's really stupid, you should even have to say this. But I do understand people out there find these kinds of issues very sensitive. And it's not a very nice thing to have to look at a guy who, well, had these views and held them close to heart. He came from the South. He was a Southerner. He was alive during the Civil War, as we'll see. And he remembered it. He remembered when his parents said that they're at war with the South. His parents owned slaves, for crying out loud. So this is a guy who, well, you really have to understand him by placing him in the context of the time. Considering where he came from, I think it's almost more incredible that he came out of his, well, his profession into the presidency, holding on to the views that he did. Of course, those views, as is probably infamous to everyone now, those views about self-determination, about nations being able to rule themselves, those views came with several caveats. Basically, you could only do that if you fell into a certain category of people. You couldn't be annoying to Woodrow Wilson, you couldn't be Irish, and you couldn't be black. So, as long as you weren't those things, oh, or any of those other islands that Americans like to claim, and anywhere else that the British happened to be ruling, which Wilson didn't really care about, you know what I mean. He didn't really evenly apply his doctrine to everything. And because of that, it's very easy to pick holes in him. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't look at that doctrine at all. And it doesn't mean we should kind of push it to the side just because it was unevenly applied. So that's my disclaimer. That's all I'm going to say about the matter. If you message me saying, I can't believe you excused his racism just so you could talk about him, I'm just going to ignore you because you know I'm not a racist. You know I don't agree with his racist ideas. And I'm at the stage in my life now. I mean, I'm fairly old at this point. I'm 27 years old. I'm just not going to take crap from people. So if you're going to email me saying, I can't believe you're a racist, you're just going to get ignored. So don't bother. Just, just... Except the fact that he's going to be talked about. And I realise that people have very strong opinions on him. And that's fine. I have strong opinions too. And you're about to hear them in this episode. Now's the point where I actually look at the script that I was going to read from. Because all of that was unscripted. I wonder if you can tell by my tone of voice whether or not things are scripted or not. In any case, let's properly talk about Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson is of course a critical character during our series simply due to the sheer impact and pull he had when it came to hammering out the final details of a peace with Germany. And while Wilson was content to a degree to go along with labelling Germany as the aggressor, complete with all the punishments that would bring, he didn't stop there, and in an act which captured the imagination of victor and vanquished alike, Wilson sought to remake the world by reimagining the way it worked and conducted business, the way it treated weakness, and the way it dealt with strength. The defining result of Wilson's philosophy also known as Wilsonianism, was the League of Nations, and its embryonic stage of formation will come under our microscope in later episodes, as will Wilson's own motives for setting it up. In this double set of profile episodes, though, I think it's important to start where many of the Allies were starting by early November 1918, with the consideration of Woodrow Wilson's 14 points. What were these points? What did they mean for the wider world? And how did Ally and enemy alike view them? Where did they come from, and why did Wilson believe that he would be capable of delivering what they had promised to a fractured continent in the throes of despair and fear? All of these are valid questions, and we will do our best to answer them in the next two episodes. I hope you'll stick along with us for this mammoth episode, which, don't forget, has a little break halfway through, just so you don't go insane and you know where to pick up later on. Without any further ado then, let's get into this. One hundred years on, 
The bumps and cracks and middle ground of the negotiations at Versailles have largely been smoothed over in favour of an image of those negotiations which, while simplified, are not entirely unjustified. The idea that on the one hand stood the vengeful Frenchman, Georges Clemenceau, and on the other stood the enlightened ideologue, Woodrow Wilson, and in the middle stood David Lloyd George, is a reductionist interpretation shaped in large part by the events which followed the signing of the Treaty of Versailles. Clemenceau, the tiger, was forced by virtue of the French war experience, his own beliefs and no shortage of public pressure, to demand security for France, the punishment of Germany, and continuing friendship with the Allies. Clemenceau felt he had no other choice than to forcibly secure the future of France, but one figure, one figure in this equation, did have a choice. There was no equivalent pressure placed upon American President Woodrow Wilson to advocate for any particular settlement at Paris. Even his contemporaries recognised this very important fact, one of them writing in 1924 that In the actual negotiations, he, Wilson, had an advantage which was unique. Every European leader was hampered by demands from his nation which were impossible of full satisfaction. Britain had her trade routes to protect and was vitally interested in fresh oil supplies. France and Belgium demanded reparation and compensation, and the former wanted restoration and revenge for the wrongs of 1870, as well as future security for her frontier. Italy had frankly taken up arms under the promise of territorial gains, and the Balkan states were out for whatever they could get. But Mr. Wilson himself spoke in the name of a nation which, for itself, desired no material gains. In stating that America had no demand to urge for privileges, territory, reparations or revenge, he rightly interpreted American sentiment, and Europe appeared to recognise this position as sincere. The general belief that America was, to this extent, unselfish, undoubtedly contributed greatly to the influence and prestige which the President enjoyed once he landed in France. Let's bear in mind this was the same President who had been re-elected on a platform of neutrality in 1916, and the slogan, He Kept Us Out of the War, only to enter the war the following year. The United States had felt compelled to intervene in the war, but few could argue all that convincingly that America was under actual military threat, certainly not in the same league as the French or even the British. Wilson did not simply believe that Germany's time had run out. He also believed that his timely intervention into the war was the best way to control what happened afterwards and to shape a post-war order which all could be proud of. Wilson was genuinely disturbed by the way in which the world had marched to war. It took him a good while to wrap his head around the fact that these civilised European nations were so willing to tear horrific lumps out of each other for, well, for what, really? For the sake of defence? For the sake of gains? For the sake of glory? It was difficult for Americans to figure out, disconnected as they were from mainstream news at that time, And Wilson also failed to understand for a very long time, and heck, we're all still trying to wrap our heads around why the whole thing happened, so you can sympathise with the man at least in that sense. The United States could very well have taken the role of a bystander in the post-war negotiations, and it could have just taken the stance that it was only interested in the repayment of the debts owed to her, which were considerable, and the appropriate punishment meted out to the Germans. Wilson could have remained in Washington in the meantime, sent his subordinate, perhaps his good friend and ally Edward House, to make a stand for America's position. It is a significant fact of history that the American president chose not to stay home, and what was more, he chose to fight tooth and nail for more than half a year for a set of principles which his own country did not necessarily need, 
and which not all of his countrymen even wanted. He chose to engage in a political campaign which cost him his position and his health. He chose a difficult-to-define, previously unknown set of principles as the basis for America's position in the negotiations. What was more, contrary to the desires of his political friends and foes, Wilson determined to fight this battle in person, to take the credit for its success, or to carry the burden for its potential failure. He would be wading into a Europe and into a French capital that was shattered and exhausted by its exertions over the last four years. He would be forced to confront and combat individuals and ideals that were in direct opposition to his own views. He would exhaust himself, frustrate himself, and make himself unwell based on a dream and based on the searing passion he felt deep down for this dream. Conviction drove him on and compelled him to create something which, even while it failed and collapsed in the end, was still a remarkable legacy for one president to leave behind. The League of Nations, the end to war as a means of settling disputes, and a post-war order which everyone could be proud of and satisfied with, these were his guiding aims, to remake the world, to redefine what it meant to get along with one another, and these aims were expressed, most publicly and most famously, in the 14 points. By the time the contents of this document were communicated, on the 8th of January 1918, the United States had been at war with the Central Powers for nine months. It is thus worthwhile taking a moment to investigate that climactic moment in American history, when Wilson caved in to the pressure, because it wasn't Wilson, contrary to what many people say these days, it wasn't Wilson who drove America into the war. As we'll see, the situation was a lot more complicated than that. Instead, it was Wilson accepting the inevitable and placing America on the Allied side of the war ledger in spite of his own reluctance and in spite of his own convictions deep down that conflict was wrong, but that in the situation, America had no other choice. The declaration of war had come in the first week of April 1917. While the traditional narrative has the United States joining the ranks of the Allies, American participation in the war was not conventional. Even in the way that it styled its association, it, well, it literally called itself an associate of the Allies, rather than a member of the Allied camp. America was not an ally of Britain, it was an associate of Britain in the war. In the second place, Woodrow Wilson moved from the outset to clarify the war in terms which his people would understand, and it was hoped, get behind. This was a war for civilization. Woodrow Wilson insisted in a speech made to Congress on the 2nd of April. He said, Our object now, as then, is to vindicate the principles of peace and justice in the life of this world as against selfish and autocratic power, and to set up amongst the really free and self-governed people of the world such a concert of purpose and of action as will henceforth ensure the observance of these principles. Neutrality is no longer feasible or desirable where the peace of the world is involved and the freedom of its peoples, and the menace to that peace and freedom lies in the existence of autocratic governments, backed by organised force, which is controlled wholly by their will, not by the will of their people. We have seen the last of neutrality in such circumstances. We are at the beginning of an age in which it will be insisted that the same standards of conduct and of responsibility for wrong done shall be observed among nations and their governments that are observed among the individual citizens of civilised states. Interestingly, Wilson then added the following point. We have no quarrel with the German people. We have no feeling towards them but one of sympathy and friendship. 
It was not upon their impulse that their government acted in entering this war. It was not with their previous knowledge or approval. It was a war determined upon, as wars used to be determined upon in the old unhappy days, when people were nowhere consulted by their rulers, and wars were provoked and waged in the interests of dynasties, or of little groups of ambitious little men who were accustomed to use their fellow men as pawns and tools. We can kind of grasp what Wilson was trying to do here, and it's a common theme he used throughout the rest of the war, when America was involved in it, that is. He tried to paint the German people as being led by their rulers, so that he could talk to the German people like on their level and say, well, this war is not your fault, you're being led along, and it's not your fault that you're being led along because your leaders are so all-powerful. But this comment would actually evoke a level of resentment and anger from these same German people, who Wilson cast as sheep being unwillingly led to the slaughter by a vile government. With the exception, of course, of some socialists and pacifists, the German people were wholly behind the war, and Germany's government actually enjoyed remarkable degrees of support, and the German people enjoyed remarkable degrees of freedom of expression as well. In addition to this mischaracterization of the German people, then, Wilson revealed something of his post-war goals. The German government, Wilson declared, was not fit to rule, and it couldn't be trusted by either the United States or the democracies of the world. Only democracies, Wilson claimed, could be so trusted. Trusted for what, we may ask? Well, to participate in a peaceful post-war arrangement, or as Wilson put it, A steadfast concert for peace can never be maintained except by a partnership of democratic nations, No autocratic government can be trusted to keep faith within it or observe its covenants. It must be a league of honour, a partnership of opinion. Intrigue would eat its vitals away. The plotting of inner circles, who could plan what they would and render account to no one, would be a corruption seated at its very heart. Only free peoples can hold their purpose and their honour steady to a common end, and prefer the interests of mankind to any narrow interests of their own. The 14 points speech certainly compelled German statesmen to engineer a regime change, but the belief that this change would pave the way to a satisfactory peace deal was established here. If Wilson had insisted that no autocratic government could be trusted to engage in peace negotiations or to exist with the United States in some League of Honour, then German officials would rid themselves of that autocracy if it helped their case, acting on the expectation that better terms would be offered to a new democratic German Republican state. This mood of hope and expectation spread within Germany to the immense chagrin of Ludendorff and Hindenburg, who had to watch as the Germany they knew collapsed into a proto-democratic state in late October 1918. On the 3rd of October 1918, the German government had appealed to the United States' president and the United States' president alone to mediate an acceptable peace treaty based on the principles of the 14 points. We will look at the actual content of the 14 points in more detail in the second part of this Profiler episode, but for now, bear it in mind that this was a moment of vindication for Wilson, whose claims about American responsibility towards world peace were verified here by the German appeal to America, and only a few months after America's president had stated its case before the world. Germany was here putting its faith in the president's avowed mission to treat justly with all nations in any post-war settlement. But its statesmen were also engaging in some desperate diplomacy which would hopefully save face. Whether these Germans believed in Wilson's message, or whether they simply wished to avoid a harsh peace themselves, 
we can judge ourselves. But either way, Wilson now had an official mandate from the losing side of this war to rush to negotiate a war-ending settlement, and he was determined in October 1918 to waste no time. The President was fully aware of the Anglo-French objections to going easy on Germany. What he was not aware of was the force that these objections would have in a post-war conference. Wilson assumed that he would be able to traverse the objections of his allies, or should that be associates, and to work with them to remake the old order. He also assumed, erroneously as it turned out, that the American people would provide the legitimacy that their president needed to accomplish his mission and that his political opponents would see past partisan lines to the bigger picture. Considering all these misjudgments that he made, the fact that he was wrong on virtually all of them, it is easy to criticise Wilson, and we will certainly do in time. But we should turn the clock back a little while to make another point. While he misjudged them in the post-war period, Wilson did make an accurate appraisal of American public opinion when he launched his country into the war. From the outset, the President had appreciated that preparing the American people for war was a considerable task, but he also did his best in the concluding section of his speech on the 2nd of April 1917 to prepare Congress, saying, There are, it may be, many months of fiery trial and sacrifice ahead of us. It is a fearful thing to lead this great peaceful people into war, into the most terrible and disastrous of all wars, civilization itself seeming to be in the balance. But the right is more precious than peace, and we shall fight for the things which we have always carried nearest our hearts, for democracy, for the right of those who submit to authority to have a voice in their own governments, for the rights and liberties of small nations, for a universal dominion of right by such a concert of free peoples as shall bring peace and safety to all nations and make the world itself at last free. To such a task we can dedicate our lives and our fortunes, everything that we are and everything that we have, with the pride of those who know that the day has come when America is privileged to spend her blood and her might for the principles that gave her birth and happiness and the peace which she has treasured. God helping her, she can do no other. We should not treat this palpable hesitation and angst on Wilson's part as simply window dressing for the war which the President had somehow always intended to fight. Biographers are unanimous in their conclusions that Woodrow Wilson genuinely despised war, and it pained him immensely to commit the United States to the fight, to a war which had already consumed millions of Europeans and ruined nations. As he listened to the cheers of enthusiasm following his speech on the 2nd of April, both within and outside of Congress, Wilson remarked prophetically, Think what it was they were applauding. My message today was a message of death for our young men. How strange it seems to applaud that. But that wasn't all. In 1916, with re-election on his mind, Wilson was aware that public opinion in the United States pushed for war in some sectors and for peace in others. There was no clear-cut majority in 1916, and Wilson had waited until both public opinion and perceived insults had reached a fever pitch before making the jump into the abyss. Such a move may appear cynical, opportunistic even, but it did have a more human side. Joseph Tumulty was Wilson's personal secretary, and he penned his memoirs in 1921 after a decade serving as the president's secretary, revealing in the process the extent of Wilson's anguish at making such difficult decisions. 
Tumulty recalled a conversation Wilson had had with him in early 1916, several months before his re-election, wherein Wilson said, You may as well understand my position right now. If my re-election as president depends upon my getting into war, I don't want to be president. I have been away, and I have had lots of time to think about this war, and the effect of our country getting into it, and I have made up my mind that I am more interested in the opinion that the country will have of me ten years from now, than the opinion it may be willing to express today. Of course, I understand that the country wants action, and I intend to stand by the record I have made in all these cases, and take whatever action may be necessary, but I will not be rushed into war, no matter if every last congressman and senator stands up on his hind legs and proclaims me a coward. I believe that the sober-minded people of this country will applaud any efforts I make, without the loss of our honour, to keep this country out of war. It is easy to forget Wilson's sincere hatred for war, because once the United States entered into the conflict, the President worked tirelessly to increase enthusiasm for the campaigns against the Central Powers. From the beginning, it was important that the American people see things Wilson's way, and that they believe in the crusade against autocracy which he was bringing them into. A committee of public information was established to achieve this purpose, and its portfolio included a wide range of responsibilities, including the production and performance of propaganda films set for cinema. One such film, called Pershing's Crusaders, framed American intervention in exactly the manner which Wilson desired. One depiction had it that, The young men of America are going out to rescue civilization. They are going to fight, to save democracy from death. They are marching on to give America's freedom to the oppressed multitudes of the earth. The mighty exodus of America's manhood to the plains of Europe may well be called the Eighth Crusade. Fighting the war and preparing his people for that fight was one thing, but Wilson wanted to be prepared for what came after the war as well. Shortly after the official declaration of war on Germany, Wilson worked with Edward House to establish a body tasked with imagining and understanding the post-war world. The body was called the Inquiry, and it was established in September 1917 at the American Geographical Society in New York, far away from the prying eyes of Washington's politicians, and also free to gorge on the wealth of materials which the maps and libraries of the American Geographical Society provided. The inquiry worked quickly, and by the 22nd of December 1917 had produced the suggested statement of peace terms. This was by far the most comprehensive, influential work yet produced on the question of a peace settlement. You will easily recognise the major talking points that the inquiry produced. First, Alsace-Lorraine should be returned to the French, and portions of Germany like the Rhineland should be demilitarised to prevent a German resurgence. Luxembourg, Belgium and Denmark were also considered, and the inquiry recommended that Luxembourg have its independence restored, that Belgium be allowed annex some Dutch territory, like Maastricht, to improve its security, and that Denmark be allowed regain the northern Schleswig region if a plebiscite confirmed that this was what the majority there wanted. Turning its attention to Eastern Europe next, and in this early stage of the Bolshevik Revolution, the inquiry made plain its intentions to see Russia restored to a position of economic predominance like a centre of gravity with the Baltic states and Ukraine revolving around it. These states were encouraged to reunite with Russia to facilitate better economic growth and more effective trade relations, and the borders agreed upon in the Baltic states in particular 
actually remained unchanged until 1991, with the inquiry even anticipating the transfer of the Crimea to Ukraine. In the newly imagined lands between Russia and Germany, Poland, Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia were the most notable new arrivals. Interestingly, Poland was to be permitted a Polish corridor, according to this inquiry, similar to that which the Paris Peace Conference granted in the end, and which Adolf Hitler was later to make so much grief out of. The inquiry's logic was relatively simple in this regard. It made sense to satisfy the 20 million ethnic Poles, rather than to spurn them in the name of the 1.6 million East Prussians, which the Polish corridor would separate from the German centre. Difficulties were already making themselves felt in the definition of Polish ethnicity, though. While some in the inquiry wanted a larger Poland, extending into Belarus and including Lithuania and parts of the Ukraine in a union, much like the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth days of yore, others believed that this was a recipe for disaster and recommended keeping the door open to plebiscites where ethnic Poles lived. The problem, that few of the countries which were being drawn contained homogenous ethnicities, was one which would haunt the Allies and negotiators for the next several years, and the matter of the dispersed Poles was only one element of this problem. Before the tangled Balkans was considered, the legacy of the Habsburg Empire with Hungary and Romania was debated, with the majority recommending that Romania receive vast portions of Transylvania and Bessarabia by virtue of Romania's presence in the Allied camp and Hungary's campaigns alongside the Austrians. Again, as if foreshadowing the decisions made in these separate treaties for other central powers, Hungary's borders were greatly reduced, and this in turn reduced the reach of the country to the benefit of its neighbours. Even Austria, in its rump German form, was to receive some city on the Adriatic to connect it to the sea and empower its smaller economy. Hungary received no such alms, and was dwarfed by the new states of Yugoslavia and Czechoslovakia to its west. The Czechs were to receive not only the Sudetenland, but also sub-Carpathian Ruthenia, a region containing half a million Hungarians. Tying the map in knots continued with the examination of the Yugoslav and Italian borders. Yugoslavia, a new idea by this point not yet constituted, was to consolidate and simplify the Balkans for many decades, and it should be considered a major legacy of the Paris Peace Conference, even while, as we have seen, it was technically created before the statesmen met in Paris, and the blessing granted by the Big Four to its existence was merely a formality in the end. This, as we have learned, was true of many newly incepted Eastern European states. In violation of the Treaty of London, which brought Italy into the war in the first place, though, the Italians were not to receive the Brenner Pass, which the inquiry believed contained too many Germans, this being in the Tyrol region. Nor were the Italians living in Fiume to be returned to their homeland, since this region was of too much importance to Yugoslav security. Italy was also to be advised to end its occupation of several Greek islands like Rhodes and the Dodecanese, and to return them to Greece. These deliberations would make Italy more homogenous and secure, but they would undoubtedly cause uproar among Italian statesmen and citizens alike, who had, after all, been promised, under the 1915 Treaty of London, a whole whopping lot of territory in order to intervene. Apparently finished with the Balkans issue, the inquiry all but ignored Albania and moved to the less contentious matter of Turkey and the then-crumbling Ottoman Empire. Following an impressive defence during the Gallipoli campaign, the Ottomans were gradually worn down by the constant state of war and of Arab revolts in their land, 
fanned by British espionage efforts and grand promises to the Arab rebels. By late 1917, it was a matter of when, rather than if, the Ottomans would sue for peace, and when they did, the inquiry envisioned a grand partitioning of their empire on a scale not dissimilar to that decided upon by the Allies at the Paris Peace Conference. A new Turkish Republic would be established in central Anatolia, while Constantinople was to be reimagined as an independent, internationalised city-state, with a given member of the great powers acting as its main guarantor. The Bosphorus, the Sea of Marmara and the Dardanelles would thus be open to all traffic, and the Turks would never be able to cut off the world from that trade centre as it had before. To ensure that the new Turkish Republic cooperated, it would be placed under a mandate as well, Adding to this list of mandates, independent states in Palestine, Syria and Mesopotamia were to be crafted out of the Ottoman Empire, with responsibility for their protection and governance falling once more to mandatory powers. In case you were wondering, no you didn't miss anything before, this is our first encounter of mandatory powers as a term or the use of mandates. Mandates were in many respects a light version of colonialism, since the existence of that people was recognised, but not its right to independence quite yet. Mandates will become an important part of the lexicon of debate which swirled around the Paris Peace Conference, and alongside the League of Nations, mandates were probably the most durable legacy of that conference, which, well, yeah, it's not saying all that much to be fair. Speaking of the League of Nations, the final ruling of the inquiry argued for the creation of something called the League of Nations to protect and guarantee against the use of aggression to settle disputes and to enshrine collective security as a principle in international relations for the first time. Gone would be the old balance of power system and the use of secret treaties to make that balance of power system possible and in its place would be this new concert where democratic countries would decide among themselves how former colonies would be ruled and what to do if a disturber of the peace did emerge. The professors had done their duty and the president was handed their findings, as we said, on the 22nd of December 1917. With its defining work completed, the inquiry did not dissolve itself. Instead, it was kept intact for the anticipated peace conference which would follow the war. This proved a fortuitous decision, as the inquiry had extensive representation among the 1,300 delegates which the United States sent to Paris in late 1918. All the while, these inquiry men exemplified professionalism and exuded knowledge. The major complaint which their peers might have had was that they produced too much material for any one individual delegate to digest, so extensive had their studies and investigations been. Since we know that the outcome of the President's deliberations was the performance of the 14 points speech three weeks later, and since we can easily discern in his latter statement a great deal of points which were retained from the inquiry's original conclusions, we should commend the inquiry in a job well done. Well, well done in so far as the President thought their findings valuable enough that they formed the basis of his famous 14 points. Wilson, you may not be surprised to learn, did not simply rise from his seat in Congress on the 8th of January 1918 and deliver that defining address. Instead, he had digested recommendations made several weeks before, keeping or emphasising the bits he did like, removing the parts he did not, and adding some new elements of his own. The question then of what compelled Wilson to draft the 14 points speech is somewhat wrong-headed. Granted, it was Wilson who advised House to supervise a committee which would develop some post-war arrangement, and the inquiry was what came from this, 
but it was the men of the inquiry who took these instructions to heart, diligently working their best to create a post-war arrangement that would stand the test of time. The inquiry men worked to imagine Wilson's dreams on the practical level, at the same time placing in context Wilson's plans by detailing the extent of the changes which would have to be instituted to fix a shattered Europe. It was to be a characteristically American peace that was proposed, or at the very least an allied peace. Wilson, the same man who had told Congress that there could be peace without victory, less than two years before, had now plainly changed his tune. Once America entered into the war on the side of the Allies, Wilson became frustrated any time the notion of a near peace was mentioned. It was impossible and foolish to try and make peace, Wilson would insist from spring 1917, at least until the Central Powers were decisively defeated. It was for this eventuality that the United States and its military allies in Europe planned for, and the 14 points were themselves meant to be applied only to a world in which that victory had been achieved. They were never drawn up to provide Germany with a get-out-of-jail-free card. Wilson intended to punish Germany for what he believed was her attempt to assert domination over Europe and threaten American interests. Arguably, the major reason for this apparent change of heart was not an epiphany within Wilson which made him favour the harsh choice. Instead, it was a decision made to protect his principles. A defeated Germany would be forced to listen to Wilson's peace plan, whereas a resilient, defiant Germany which gained an armistice that still granted it its old lands and power would surely make its own demands and ignore Wilson's. Germany would have to be fixed before she could be trusted, and she could only be fixed if she were defeated. We have given some background to Wilson's views, but who was Wilson the individual, the thinker and the dreamer, and what exactly were his 14 points? Well, we have seen that Wilson's perspectives had their roots in earlier public policy pronouncements, but never mind the moments where these were first communicated, I want to know when they first entered Wilson's mind. I want to know where Wilson's ideology, known ever since as Wilsonianism, actually came from. To do that, and to give additional context to his 14 points, we have to look at Wilson the man, rather than simply Wilson the president. Okay, so you made it to the halfway point. Congratulations. As is my want with episodes like these that are rather large, I like to split them in half with a little song put in the middle. This way you can find your waypoint fairly easily and it also breaks up the mood a bit because I, for one, find it hard to concentrate for an hour and 20 minutes. I don't know about you. Maybe if I was listening to my own voice, it'd be grand. But I'm not. I'm speaking and you have to listen. So it's not exactly the easiest thing in the world. And I'm here to help. I should, of course, let you know that this song you're about to hear, it's a pretty interesting jingle. It's called Red Army is the Strongest, and it was written in 1920. It's also known as White Army Black Baron, and it's a marching song. It was written by a guy whose name is kind of hard to pronounce, but it's been anglicized into Pavel Gorin, or Pavel Grigorev, and it was composed by Samuel Pokras. The song was meant to be a combat anthem for the Red Army. Obviously, by its name, you can tell it was meant to rally the morale of the Reds during the very gory, bloody, bitter civil war, which ripped through Russia from basically the word go once the revolution began until the early 1920s. The Russian Civil War is a topic we will get to in time, but for now, enjoy this song. Before we jump into this song, though, 
I should, of course, let you know that this song is brought to you by the Delegation Game, because the Delegation Game is just, well, it's all over the place at the moment, isn't it? If you're sick and tired of me talking about it, fast forward about, I don't know, like 20 or 30 seconds. It's not going to be a very long ad, but if you are interested, if you've never done, like, anything to do with Patreon, if you've never thought about engaging more with this podcast, then that's fine. But for some people that have signed up, they've said that the delegation game is the thing that pushed them over the edge. And it doesn't just mean that you get to participate in this very exciting little game we have. It also means that you get everything extra that goes along with it. All these episodes of the Versailles Anniversary Project will be ad-free. You'll get to listen to 1956 and all the other stuff that we release on Patreon and the extra feed as well. For $6 a month, you too can participate in the delegation game. So if you're interested, look at the links in the description and click on them. Go to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails or go to wfpodcast.com forward slash the delegation game. Thanks for listening to this tiny little ad, guys. And enjoy this latest song. We will, of course, be back afterwards. Woodrow Wilson was born to a Scots-Irish family in Staunton, Virginia on the 28th of December 1858. Growing up on 1824 North Coulter Street, which is now the Woodrow Wilson Presidential Library, the young Wilson lived through a transformative period of the young republic's history. Interestingly, his grandparents had campaigned against slavery and had even published an anti-slavery newspaper, but his father moved with his new wife deep into the rural Georgia and then Virginia, serving as a Presbyterian minister. In spite of the family's history, Woodrow Wilson's father, Joseph Wilson, owned slaves and even established a Sunday school for them, as well as temporarily serving as a chaplain in the Confederate States Army. 
one of Woodrow's earliest memories was of hearing that Lincoln had been elected president and that a war was coming. Since he was only a child, he knew little of the horrors of war firsthand, yet he did seem to retain some measure of awareness of the impact of that bloody conflict. In addition, the young Woodrow devoted himself to his studies and he took an active role in the Presbyterian Church, which had separated from its sister church in the north after seceding. His father had been instrumental in establishing that church, and he served as its senior administrator and minister for more than three decades, during which time Woodrow retained his faith and membership of the Presbyterian Institution. In the 1870s, Woodrow attended the relatively unknown New Jersey College, soon to be rechristened Princeton University. Upon graduating in 1879, Wilson made his presence felt in the liberal debating society and entered upon an unhappy career as a lawyer before returning to Princeton in 1890 to teach, moving up the ranks by 1902 to become the university's president. For the next eight years, Woodrow Wilson worked tirelessly to further Princeton's reputation as a centre of learning by campaigning for more money and by drawing in prominent students from across the country. Thanks in large part to his success in this regard, by 1910 Woodrow Wilson was a name familiar to many, especially those in New Jersey, and the Democratic Party in New Jersey asked that he capitalise upon this notoriety by running for governor. From the beginning he made it clear to the conservative wing of the Democratic Party that he wanted to be a force for change and to stand as a progressive candidate that worked to institute reform and to better his starting position, just as he had done at Princeton. The Democratic Party said, all right then, do what you will, and thus, at the age of 52 and with no history of a political career, Wilson began the journey which was to end, astonishingly enough, with the presidency, fewer than three years later. Wilson for president, clubs, sprang up almost as soon as he swept the governorship of New Jersey race, and by 1911, Wilson found that he had another choice to make. So we should state from the outset that Wilson's unconventional rise to the top of America's greasy pole may well account for the burning convictions which he carried all the way to the Paris Peace Conference in 1919. His convictions and ideological stance contained several progressive, modernising flavours, though they were still tinted with the typically racist view on African Americans, as we said in our disclaimer at the beginning of this episode. Unsurprisingly as well, Wilson was ferociously ambitious, a trait which became apparent as he wrested the Democratic nomination for president in 1912. On the surface, his career up to that point read like a series of successive triumphs, one after another. As Margaret Macmillan wrote, though, There were darker moments, both personal and political, fits of depression and sudden and baffling illnesses. Moreover, he left behind him a trail of enemies, many of them former friends. One of these friends, a New Jersey Democratic boss whom Wilson had certainly climbed over to reach the top, was heard to refer to the presidential nominee as an ingrate and a liar. Even his press secretary and admirer would confess that Wilson had been a good hater. In the process of reaching the top of the American Republic at breakneck speed, it was inevitable that Wilson would stand on some toes. If his ambition had got him this far, then his stubbornness prevented him from backing down. 
Whenever a question is presented, he keeps an absolutely open mind and welcomes all suggestion or advice which will lead to a correct decision. But he is only receptive during the period that he is weighing the question and preparing to make his decision. Once the decision is made, it is final and there is an absolute end to all advice and suggestion. There is no moving him after that. These are the words of Edward House, Wilson's close friend and firm ally for the next several years. House, believe it or not, was speaking favourably of Wilson here, but others were less charitable in their opinions. The French ambassador remarked bitingly that Wilson was a man who, had he lived a couple of centuries ago, would have been the greatest tyrant in the world because he does not seem to have the slightest conception that he can ever be wrong. Wilson was indeed guided by his convictions and the belief that he was right. Like plucking a university professor from their safe haven and placing them in the public eye, Wilson's mannerisms and the language he used could appear stiff and overtly formal. He was not particularly charismatic, but he was good-looking and he was charming when he had to be. His pursuit of the highest office of power was a means to an end for him as well, that end being the desire to do great works. He genuinely wanted to reform the country, but he also wanted to fix the glaring problems of the rest of the world and of the international system which the First World War had painfully exposed. Wilson's problem, as we have discerned before, was not that his convictions were weak or that they served merely as a cover for his power grab. Instead, Wilson's problem was that his convictions and passions consumed him. Alongside this conviction, stubbornness naturally went hand in hand. It was to be expected that a man who believed his mission to be morally right would see any opposition to this mission as a deeply wounding insult and view those that opposed his quest as wicked and morally bankrupt. His vision was what mattered, and it is well worth considering that Wilson's very lack of a political education, at least in the conventional sense, served him well at first, but proved his undoing in the end. He could be, as David Lloyd George appreciated, kind, sincere and straightforward, but Wilson was at the same time capable of being, in Lloyd George's mind, tactless, obstinate and vain. An individual more experienced in the political machinery of the United States, more in tune with the sensitivities of both parties, and more aware of the limited scope for change, might not have aimed so high. Yet Wilson aimed incredibly high, and he did not seek compromise until it was too late, because his convictions regarding the need to make a better world were deeply personal to him. He believed that others could be persuaded to see the opportunities for mutual benefit, and he found it impossible as time went on to deal with people that were ideologically opposed to him. He expected others to be convinced quickly of his rightness, and when they were not, Wilson was sometimes seen to lose his temper. This, much to House's immense dismay, was a frequent enough scene, at least in the later phases of the Paris Peace Conference. We could talk in circles for hours about Wilson's character, and you will certainly be sick of his name and person by the time this project is finished. Considering the complex and profoundly significant experiences of the Paris Peace Conference, though, it is hardly surprising that the man who arguably had the greatest impact upon its proceedings should be so difficult to figure out. The best we can do is assert that Wilson's personality and passions were shaped by his upbringing, his experiences, and his career, all of which had had abundant opportunities to work and mould him before he stepped up to the highest office. He was a product of these experiences rather than of his political outlook, and that was what made Wilson so special. 
While it would therefore be wrong to say that Wilson was untouched by political influences, he was certainly more concerned with what he could do rather than who he would offend by doing it. Because of this, Wilson was often in a position to get a great deal done, but one could not help but notice at the same time that he would only have a limited time in which to do it before he exhausted all of his friends, his favours and his followers. In the end, his governing style and personality would eventually throw up a brick wall. And it was this brick wall which Wilson unfortunately smashed into once he returned from Paris in summer 1919, having seen signs in the preceding months that all would not go according to plan when he sought to persuade Americans to give their blessing to the Treaty of Versailles. At the same time, though, only a figure like Wilson could have imagined and then fought so tenaciously for the flawed but well-meaning settlement which tied the rest of Europe together for the preciously few years before the eruption of the Second World War. Critics of Wilson often point to his record in Mexico in order to explain and get across their points about why he made such a bad president, or the damage he did to other countries. I don't disagree that Wilson wasn't exactly always honest when he acted in Mexico, but I want to look at the Mexican involvement in a different light. I want to look at it in the light of explaining his personality and explaining his convictions. So I'm going to do that now, so bear with me. If you absolutely hate this approach and you hate the fact that I'm giving Wilson so many chances... I hope you don't think that I'm some kind of fanboy for his at all. I'm not going to put out another disclaimer. I'm just going to try my best with this section, and maybe you'll see what I saw when looking through this part of history. I don't have any dog in this race, or whatever it is, horse in this race, or dog in this fight, whatever the expression is. I just, I'm interested in finding out where Wilson got these ideas from, and the Mexico incident, I feel, goes a long way towards explaining at least a bit of that. So, let's look at that now. When Woodrow Wilson ascended to the office of President of the United States in spring 1913, the Mexican Revolution had been ongoing for several months already. Its root causes were legion, but foremost among them was the usurpation and assassination of the democratically elected government of Francisco Madero by Victoriano Huerta. Madero was killed under Huerta's orders in February 1913, while Huerta also ordered killed Madero's brother and his vice president, just to be sure. As Huerta assumed power at gunpoint and Madero's family fled into exile in Texas, Wilson found himself immediately confronted with the fallout of Huerta's actions. He would not have been alone in condemning the murder of Madero, which deeply shocked him, nor would he have been alone in loathing Huerta for torpedoing Mexico's first genuine attempt at democracy. The historian Barbara Tuckman described Huerta as a pure-blooded Indian with a flat nose, a bullet head, a sphinx's eyes behind incongruous spectacles, and a brandy bottle never far from hand, wily, patient, laconic, and rarely sober. For the next year, Wilson worked to undermine Huerta and his government, supporting the rebels through arms deals and refusing to recognise his regime. Wilson applied pressure upon not merely Latin America, but also Britain and France, to refrain from loaning Huerta any money, thus lacking in funds, Huerta found that he was unable to crush the opposition which sprang up against his illegitimate presidency. Wilson also continued to address him in his stiff telegrams to Mexico City as General Huerta, rather than as the President of Mexico, the title Huerta claimed in vain. Tensions reached a boiling point when American soldiers landed at the port of Veracruz. 
Isolated in the Americas and unable to find allies, the unscrupulous Huerta was forced from office through another coup in the weeks shortly before the outbreak of the Great War. While it would be another few years before a stable democracy could prosper in Mexico, Wilson made it clear from the offing that the United States would support any such democratically elected regime, while he also promised to respect the rights of all Mexicans to rule themselves. In the years that followed, Wilson remained true to his word. He intervened in force against rebellious elements that threatened to overthrow the elected Mexican government by force, crossing the border on many occasions and authorizing covert operations against harmful elements which might destabilize the Mexican government and prevent the passage of badly needed reforms. Wilson was not looking to annex Mexico or to invade it and impose his authority over it, but even though this wasn't what he was trying to do, many historians have attempted to peer behind the veneer, or at least the message Wilson was putting out there, in an effort to draw out what they believe were the true motives for Wilson's actions. So taking one such example in his 2007 work, Erez Manela contended that Wilson's declared intentions to act in the name of Mexico's self-determination represented mere window dressing. Mexicans, as non-Europeans, did not fall under the self-determination principles which Wilson believed in, and Manella added that while Wilson did not exclude non-Europeans from the right to self-determination as a matter of principle, he also didn't believe that they were ready for self-rule at that moment, and envisioned them achieving it through an evolutionary process under the benevolent tutelage of a civilized power. Erez Manella's description of Wilson's behaviour sounds like the system of mandates which would be incepted following the Paris Peace Conference, but Wilson did not establish a mandate over Mexico between 1913-15, to 15, even while the turmoil of the country and its relative weakness and division, when compared to the United States, would have easily enabled him to do so. Instead of an imperium or a barely-veiled protectorate in Mexico, Wilson worked to ensure that the dictator, Huerta, was undermined and expelled, and that a truly democratic, constitutionally-based reformist Mexican government was elected in its place. You may be wondering with some justification what Mexico and its internal difficulties had to do with Woodrow Wilson's behaviour during the Paris Peace Conference and his avowed convictions. Well, significantly for us, and this is where my whole reason for doing all this examination of Mexico comes in, it was the historian Lucas Frank who discerned not just coincidence in the parallels between Wilson's behaviour towards Mexico and his later behaviour at Versailles, but a pattern. Wilson behaved as he did, worked tirelessly and often against the loud American businessman who saw Huerta's unstable regime as ripe for exploitation because he believed that Mexicans had a right to rule themselves and that the Mexican people and the United States would benefit once a genuinely democratic regime was installed in the country. If we take Lucas Frank's argument to heart, then much of what Wilson did later on at Versailles makes sense. Certainly it adds some clarification to the pre-existing debate surrounding where and when Wilson's famed principles come from. As far as debates go, it remains heated and extensive though, but let's take a few examples. The historian Arthur S. Link suggested that Wilson adopted his appreciation for the principles of self-determination only after the Veracruz incident, so in other words, only after he'd been interfering in Mexico for some time. Thomas Nock held the view that 
Wilson's ideas about the League of Nations and self-determination actually only crystallised during his 1916 re-election campaign. Furthermore, in their individual works, both of the historians Lorenzo Meyer and Mark Gilderus maintained that Wilson did not act in Mexico in the name of American material interests, but for the sake of his convictions and principles. But neither historian went further or attempted to link Wilson's Mexican behaviour with Versailles, as Lucas Frank did. Other historians see even less savoury motives in Wilson's interfering behaviour in Mexico. The historian Alan Knight wrote that the main reason Wilson worked to undermine Huerta's regime wasn't due to his convictions, but because Wilson was a white supremacist, and Huerta's repressive dictatorship was forcing many Mexicans to cross into the United States for safety. To end this influx of illegal Mexican immigrants, Knight supposes that Wilson worked to find a replacement regardless of the cost. The point of citing the opinions of all these historians, and of looking at the more positive ones as well as the negative ones, is to show that it's really easy to be cynical and to discount Wilson's behaviour in Mexico as the policy of a naked imperialist, just as it's easy enough as well to see it as the manifestation of convictions which would later show themselves again at Versailles. Consider even this short list of the actions he took in Mexico. He sent men over the Mexican border, he landed soldiers to seize a Mexican port, he interfered in the country's government, both through his ambassador and with military force, he opened the border to arms deals, knowing full well that the rebels would benefit. The list goes on, and any one of these issues could be painted in a cynical manner, discrediting in the process Wilson's entire philosophy and painting him instead as a president typical of the era when Americans made colonies and refused to call it empire building. Wilson's actions towards Mexico were never straightforward, and they did not make consistent sense. One Mexican figure who preferred to remain anonymous even questioned if Wilson had a policy at all, or if he was simply making it all up as he went along. Amidst the bloodletting, the high tensions and the covert operations, if he was asked, Wilson would have insisted that he was behaving with a distinct goal in mind, and that goal being to upend the dictatorship of Huerta so that a democratic regime could take its place. After all I've said, it is not my place to convince you of Wilson's infallibility in the Mexican affair, nor do I want to do that, but I do believe that this detour into Mexico, many years before Europe had learned of the name Woodrow Wilson, provides us with a remarkable window into that president's convictions, his principles, and his beliefs. We must ask why Wilson went to so much effort to effect change in Mexico by overseeing the establishment of a democratically elected government, when an imperium over America's southern neighbour would have been remarkably easy to establish instead. We must also ask why Wilson withstood the constant pressures from the wider community of nations and his own American businessmen who wished to deal with the murderous Huerta because Huerta was going to give them good deals. If the furthering of American economic and political interests were foremost in his aims, then Wilson would have done well to recognise and accept Huerta. Incidentally, even with his terrible past behaviour, Wilson did give Huerta a few months to demonstrate his commitment to democracy. Once Huerta continually kicked the can of elections down the road, though, Wilson turned against him with a vengeance, even recalling the American ambassador in Mexico City because of his pro-Huerta stance. From here, we can discern that it would have been a far easier path to take if Wilson had simply let Huerta do his thing and not worked to find a replacement. Taking the path of most resistance was in many respects the motto of Wilson's foreign policy, Wilson's favouring of humanitarian and 
philanthropic principles, with caveats of course, was not unique in history. As the historian and diplomat Douglas Hurd noted though, Wilson's stance in international relations may not have been unprecedented, but his efforts to recast world diplomacy with such principles as their basis were of singular significance to history. Douglas Hurd said, The doctrine of humanitarian intervention in international affairs did not begin with President Wilson's famous 14 points, set out in January 1918. Before that, Britain had intervened across the world to close down the slave trade, something from which we had ourselves benefited largely in the preceding century. Gladstone had thundered against the Turks in the Midlothian campaign, though it is not clear that the Bulgarians, for whom he was speaking, benefited in any way from his distant eloquence as a leader of the opposition. But Wilson's 14 points and his subsequent effort between the Armistice and the Treaty of Versailles marked the first serious attempt to recreate international order with humanitarian principles as its foundations. Scholars continue to reach different verdicts both on that effort and on the disillusion which followed. So understanding Wilson's character is no easy task, and we will grapple with several elements of that character as our story moves forward. Thinking back to what we said about Wilson taking the path of most rather than least resistance though, and linking that point to what Douglas Hurd outlined above, it must be emphasised that Woodrow Wilson was going very much against the grain in his efforts to reimagine world affairs and to redesign the international order based on principles and terms like self-determination, collective security and liberal democracy. The question which Wilson's presidency boils down to is, I believe, one of conviction. Did he genuinely believe in the core message of the 14 points, which provided for a freer, more considerate, and less predatory world? Did he sincerely believe that America could, and that it should, have a leading role in furthering the cause for democracy and preserving peace, even in situations where this would cost Washington, and where opportunities for expansion and imperium could be expected to diminish? Conviction, that I feel is the crux of the issue, and the evidence is very much in favour of the idea that, rather than having no conviction and acting with some conspiratorial or cynical set of interests in mind, Wilson in fact had too much conviction and was too passionate about his pet projects, even where the rest of the world was not quite ready for them. Far from insincere, his determination to create the vision of the world which he imagined as its best iteration forced him into immensely difficult positions, and practical realities also compelled him to compromise on issues where he did not want to, and to appear hypocritical even as it pained him to do so. I have said before that Wilson's tireless efforts cost him his health and his political position. Surely, if Wilson did not wholeheartedly believe in his ideas, he would not have advocated for them at the expense of everything else, including, arguably, a peace treaty which could actually have stood the test of time. Like I said, it's not up to me to persuade you of Wilson's sincerity, but I think it is reasonable to say that, if we are to accept Wilson was acting genuinely at the Paris Peace Conference, we must also say that these values and ideas that he fought so hard for there had to have come from somewhere. The initial years of his presidency, when the Mexican Revolution flaunted the principles which he held dear, posed a definite challenge. In his stand for a legitimate democratic Mexican regime, Wilson alienated many of his countrymen who were looking for an opportunity to expand American economic and political influence down south. Yet Wilson worked tenaciously for the course which he believed was the right and moral one. He allowed opportunities to slip by which would have empowered Washington at Mexico's expense because that wasn't what he wanted. In the same vein, by autumn 1918, 
Wilson did not want to wrest submission or concessions from a fractured and exhausted Europe. He wanted to help Europe. Mexico had provided Woodrow Wilson with the opportunity to put into practice and fight for the ideals which his previous life and career had helped to shape into a personality. Had he been a career politician, perhaps these traits would well have been worn away by the time he reached the presidency, but because of his unconventional path to the White House, his convictions were not worn away. In addition, his ideology had been sharpened and deepened throughout the years of watching the Allies batter one another to a standstill during three years of war, before the United States had even gotten involved. As someone who was repulsed by war, a fact testified to by his contemporaries, and demonstrated by the agony with which he made that fateful decision of entering the conflict against the Central Powers, Wilson wanted to do everything he could to avoid war thereafter. The best way to do this was to remove the causes of conflict by giving the people what they wanted, liberal democracy, and by protecting these governments in an unbroken chain of allies bound together in a mutually defending league of nations. In answering the pivotal question, though, where did Wilson's ideology come from, we must consider his previous policies as evidence of the maturation of this ideology. Mexico was the small-scale, regional incubator of ideals and values which Wilson would then unleash upon a hungry world several years later. Considering the close proximity of both events in terms of time and ideological rhetoric, I believe it is fair to conclude that Mexico represents the beginning of a pattern which Wilson brought to its famous, albeit tragic conclusion, over 1918 to 1919. Please don't hate me for that opinion, it's just what I believe in after looking at the evidence. Indeed, the way he approached the looming Paris Peace Conference was very similar to the way which he had approached the Mexico problem. Like a singularly focused statesman who saw only their goals and principles and believed he could work around those of his rivals. By so acting, Wilson inadvertently sowed confusion and suspicion among the Allies and Germans from the beginning, because even while he expected to be able to overcome their objections, the President never imagined that the arguments of the Europeans would carry a greater moral and emotional weight than his own. As the historian William Allen White wrote, The German people undoubtedly believed, when they refused to back their military leaders, that the surrender would not be to Foch, but to Wilson and the 14 points, which guaranteed all that any civilised nation could ask of its warring neighbours. Whatever may have been in the hearts of the European leaders, military and civil, when Foch accepted the surrender of the German generals in the armistice, Wilson expected, when the peace terms were made, that they would be made so that the new order of things, international, which he had been preaching for more than three years, might be written into the treaty and made a part of the realities of the peace at the end of the hostilities. His good faith has never been questioned. Wilson's mistake, which was natural enough, was to have too much confidence in his own ability to talk away the realities of the war. Wilson's inability to anticipate any serious setbacks and his expectation that his programme would be accepted warmly may compel us to begin throwing stones. If I hadn't said it before, and I have, it is far too easy to criticise Wilson, not only for his behaviour during the Paris Peace Conference, but for his blunders even before he had left for Paris and his political failings, and for the Mexican involvement. The more perceptive contemporaries of Wilson's during the negotiations appreciated that Wilson was arguing for a mandate that imagined a brave new world, even while his political opposites back home in Washington wanted very little to do with it. 
Infamously, Wilson lost the battle to persuade his countrymen to accept what he had negotiated, but many Europeans that were in the know understood that Wilson never possessed this mandate in the first place. Wilson had become so blinded by his mission, it seemed, that he was ignorant to opposition close to home, and consequently he could never bring himself to accept the painful reality, that being that he never possessed the political capital necessary to successfully buy the idea which he had been floating. Harold Nicholson, a member of the British delegation and author of arguably the best personal account of the Paris Peace Conference, was certainly capable of recognising Wilson's deficits. In a biting critique, Harold Nicholson wrote, It must be remembered, in fact, that during the whole course of the conference, President Wilson and his staff could not rely upon the support, either of Congress or of their own public opinion. It was the knowledge that the President did not in fact possess the political, as distinct from the physical, power to proceed to the logical conclusions of his own policy, which destroyed his authority in Paris, and enabled other statesmen to extract from him concessions of which he profoundly disapproved. What was the lever which enabled them to move this cemented man from his initial position? It was this. They knew that President Wilson did not, in the February of 1919, represent America. They also knew that he would die, and he eventually did die, rather than admit that fact. They knew that his faith in democracy was the deepest conviction of his sensitive soul. They knew that Mr. Wilson would never face the fact that his own American people had let him down. They knew that, in order to disguise that fact from himself, he would submit to any humiliation. They knew that the one way to manage Wilson was to threaten to, and then to refrain from, showing him up. The conceit and egoism of Mr. Wilson must, of course, be admitted. Yet these were but as straws upon the deep current of his faith. It was his faith which they exploited. His faith in the people and in God. They knew that it would be excruciating for him to admit that neither of these two illusions played any part in the Paris Peace Conference. President Wilson was destroyed not by his faults, but by his virtues. This would not be the last time Wilson would be assailed by Harold Nicholson's pen, but what did he mean by the American people letting him down, and how did this make Wilson vulnerable to exploitation? Was Nicholson exaggerating somewhat, especially considering the rapturous welcome which the American president received in his arrival in France in mid-December 1918? Considering how enthusiastically many believed in Wilson's 14 points, and how desperately so many people wanted to believe that a new order could be crafted, including several individuals and the other Allied staffs, is it fair to pigeonhole Wilson in this way, and to claim that he was effectively doomed from the start? All of these are questions we will deal with in time, but first, the 14 points must come under our microscope. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 